Uh, hey everyone, welcome back to Talking Success. Uh, before we dive into this week's episode with none other than Mr. Chris Skinner, I have a bit of an announcement to make. Uh, our next few episodes are sponsored by LexisNexis Risk Solutions. Uh, for those of you uh, who may be uh, au fait with LexisNexis, uh, Risk Solutions is a growing part of their business. They provide AML, KYC, um, and risk solution products and services to banks, to fintechs, to insurance companies, and to enterprises. We've got to know their team really well here in South Africa. They were a U.S. business, but uh, have been growing across the continent for a number of years. So if you are looking at uh, new solutions, you want some risk assessments done, I, I certainly recommend getting in touch with uh, the guys over at uh, Lexis, Nexus Risk Solutions. Uh, the links are in the bottom here. And uh, again, a big thank you to the team there for their sponsorship. Without further ado, let's go and hear what Chris has to say. Uh, hey everyone, welcome back to Talking Success. Um, we, we've had uh, some really, really fascinating people on this year. Uh, since we've gone video, since we've gone live, and uh, the YouTube channel has, has gone crazy, which is thanks to all of our guests and, and you, our, our listeners as well. Um, and today I'm joined by someone who I had the pleasure of meeting, sorry, I should have turned that off. Uh, I had the pleasure of meeting about six years ago i think it was chris um and it was in cape town <laughs> and you were um mc at an event i think it was finnovate if i'm not mistaken um it was sort of my early days into the world of sort of fintech and uh chris was mc and he stood on stage and he gave this opening talk about the future of banking and the, the digital transformation and uh i thought wow this guy clearly knows his stuff um and then I think it was the second day, about 11, 12 o'clock, uh, Chris and uh, one of the event organizers came up to me and said, listen, Chris has got to be somewhere and he needs to change his flight. And he's got to go to the airport. So uh, are you okay just to stand in for him? And there was me going, uh, well, I'll try. Anyway, um, Chris, to be fair, um, you weren't going to lose your job. Um, it was bloody awful. Um, I was terrible. It was my, literally my first kind of MC gig. And uh, I thought, you know what, I, I, need, to, I need to practice some more. Um, anyway, I've been a fan of Chris ever since. And um, <laughs> sorry, I haven't actually introduced you. It's Mr. Chris Skinner, everyone. If you don't know who Mr. Chris Skinner is, then clearly <laughs> you're not in the world of fintech or banking or digital transformation. Um, uh, Chris is a, a renowned author, um, uh, an industry legend, if I don't. Yeah, not, not blowing too much smoke, Chris, here. You know, please stop me. And uh, well, I've tried very hard to grow our subscriber base, and I don't want them going, oh, this guy's just full of trash. Oh, you, I, oh, I'm enjoying the gushing. Keep gushing, and, um, it's fine. Yeah, Chris has won numerous <laughs> awards. And um, after we met, it was about two years later, um, I bumped, him, bumped into him again, this time in Amsterdam, of all places. And it was off the, uh, the back of the Money 2020 Summit, um, and it was actually on, on the sub side of it, which was the European Women in Payments Network, EWPN, um, run by a fantastic group of ladies across Europe. Um, and I thought I was going to be the only guy in the room. And there is Chris sitting in the corner um, with a, a room full of uh, or a table full of ladies and clearly enjoying life. Um, so uh, that was kind of where we had a, another shared interest. So I was invited there as part of the sort of African delegation because uh, of my work with the African Women in Fintech and Payments. And Chris was obviously there wearing his EWPN hat. Um, and then we started talking um, and um, we actually released, well, I, I released a, a blog. Um, I don't know if you remember this, Chris, right? Uh, this is probably four or five years ago before COVID. Um, and it's, it was entitled uh, FinTech Needs More Men, right? Now, the barrage of, do you remember that one? <laughs> the barrage of abuse I got for that because mm -hmm. people obviously didn't read the content and just looked at the title. Don't get me wrong, clickbait. 101 it was brilliant it worked fantastically well but the message behind that was not fintech needs more men it's fintech needs more male uh, allies right and and that's really what i wanted to talk some parts of uh, of this conversation there with chris about um it's a very important topic um and yeah that's kind of a bit of a prelude to what we can discuss today so chris welcome i know you've got many hats that you've worn you've been in the industry for Many years, um, you've won many, many, many accolades. You did. You didn't mention the, the the seventeen business books that I've written and the five children's books. <laughs> Literally out of my mouth. Um, <laughs> the children's books is a really interesting one. I, I will come back onto that. I promise. As are the seventeen banking books, of course. All right. You um, but um, 
clearly I've missed some other things, Chris. Um, you're, despite the accent, you're not based in London uh, or in, in the UK. You're based in a, a rather cold place in, uh, in Poland, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of global, to be honest. But my main base is uh, uh, just outside London and just outside Warsaw. Um, my wife is Polish, so we moved here some years ago because okay. we've got two little boys. And we wanted them to be near their grandparents, aunts and uncles and cousins. And so I've uh, now been here five wow. years. It was meant yeah. to be you two. Doing life there? I mean, uh, I imagine it's quite different from London. I've never been to Warsaw, but I imagine it's quite different. That's actually, in some ways, a lot better because I think Britain is a bit of a basket case post-Brexit. And uh, particularly, you know, when you've seen Boris Johnson, Liz Truss, Rishi Sunak and the whole disarray of the country. And, you know, the non-stop debate in Britain is about really negative things like getting rid of migrants, etc. Yeah. and sending them to Rwanda. Um, it's depressing. You know, the country is not what it was. So I'm not bashing Britain but in Poland you know probably because I don't watch the news because I don't speak Polish I tried for six months during the pandemic lockdown and failed miserably because every word has a Z, a Z in it or a J and a K all the things on the Scrabble board you get the highest points for um, in fact I can't even pronounce the street I live on um, you know, it sounds like I'm Tommy Cooper because it's protege um, but basically uh, yeah, what I like about the country is um, it's very new, very vibrant. A lot of the systems were implemented post the uh, Berlin Wall um, and Iron Curtain coming down. So hugely competitive retail banking marketplace, all of them with pretty new systems and new ideas and fantastic infrastructure. So it, you know, if it was a competition, I'd say if, if Poland could speak English, I'd feel it was the best country in the world. And a lot, a lot of yeah, Polish people yeah, do absolutely. speak English. So. Um, and one thing, ladies and gentlemen, before we get get, get into anything else, um, Chris speaks his mind. Um, he's one, he's, a, he's a commentator and a true commentator. So um, he's not afraid of sort of calling out anyone or any company or anything like that. Um, he is independent. He doesn't work for any of these businesses. Um, and he's not afraid to, you know, to call out these, uh, these sort of organizations or uh, countries or governments. Um, so I'm sure we'll cover that a little bit later. Anyway. Chris, before we get on to the, um, uh, the, the the sort of gender diversity stuff, because I, I really want to talk about that. I know, obviously, you've got a wealth of knowledge and you speak all the time about digital banking and the future of banking. What have you, and I, I promise we will catch or we will touch on that. Um, but let's before we do that, you have been quite busy recently and you've just finished something. Um, what have you been busy doing and what have you just finished and what's coming in sort of mid next year? Yeah, um, well, I'm flying around again quite a lot, um, going to conferences, networking, and speaking. But um, over the last couple of years, I, I'm, I, you know, every two years, I produce a new banking business book, which is why the 17th and there's about to be the 18th delivered in this um, Q2 uh, 2024. And it was interesting because the, the book started as the idea of decentralized versus centralized money and the whole nature of central bank digital currencies versus stable coins versus cryptocurrencies and where that would pan out. And that's a huge debate in itself. But then halfway through ChatGPT, OpenAI, BARD, everything started happening with um, generative artificial intelligence. And if you integrate the two concepts, you know, decentralized or centralized financial services with artificial intelligence, then it ended up getting into a discussion around what I call intelligent money, which is where money thinks for us. We don't have to think about it anymore. It's embedded, invisible, uh, intelligent, and everywhere. And when you start looking at that concept, of course, there are things that are implications around this in terms of how you look at money in your lifestyle and the whole idea of it is that if money is intelligent then it'll understand your lifestyle and it will tell you when you're doing stupid things doing good things it's going to be smart it's going to be contextual it's going to be highly personalized it's like saying at the moment i still get really annoyed with my bank um because they're traditional banks who give me statements that just say a transaction and no reference or understanding of who the hell it came from 
Uh, whereas intelligent money would not only tell you who and where it came from, but why at what time, what you were doing, maybe what you were actually buying, why you bought it. You know, it could give you all that intelligence. Which is what some of the, the challenger banks um, that are sort of app-based first are doing. I know here in South Africa, we've got Discovery Bank, um, who, who do that exceptionally well. Um, they really, really do. Um, you know, and they're able to segment. I think Revolut do this as well. And they're able to sort of segment what you're sort of spending on, uh, whether it's retail, whether it's food, or whether it's whatever, cinema tickets. And they're able to categorize that. But this is taking it a ne- next step. Yeah, yeah, but as you say that, that's, that sounds like personal financial management, which is what we were doing yeah. 10 years ago. And the challenge banks do do that really well. But I'm saying we're going to go well beyond that, which is um, actually going to the stage where you could almost integrate emotion into money um, in terms of giving you um, everything you need to know about everything you do, uh, embedded, invisible, and everywhere. Um but you, you probably would, won't want that for a, a, you know, buying a cappuccino in a local cafe. Yeah. But you would want that for um, when you start to see um, lifestyle events. So I, I've talked a lot recently about the bank of the future being a lifestyle manager. And the whole idea of that is that when you um, get a job, get made redundant, have a birth or have a death, etc., etc., a package of APIs that integrates all that together through your trusted financial um, provider and gives you complete contextual management of that life event uh, with all of the things that go around it. And that starts getting interesting. I mean, the challenger banks are doing this, but some traditional banks are in that um, Royal Bank of Canada and Nordea in um, the uh, Nordic region uh, I have both been talking about this idea of integrating APIs for life events. And so the example that was given by Nordea, which I remember quite well, is that you crash your car, but your bank's insurance app then manages the whole incident for you. You don't even have to ring a taxi or a tow truck. It's all done through APIs, and you just um, basically get out of the car, and then everything is done. Okay. And how would that work for other things outside of that user case. I'm just trying to get my head around this, right? So um, would it work if I was contemplating, I, I, I get this is sort of hypothetical, but um, if I was contemplating buying a new car, um, would effectively the the bank be able to sort of question me and go, are you sure this is what you really want to buy? Um, you know, maybe you should look at something else or given how you commute or the amount of mileage that you do or, you know, the terrain you drive in, maybe this is a better option and we can give you financing based on that. Do you, is that the sort of thing you're talking about or? It's kind of getting there, although I don't think the bank would t- tell you not no, to buy that car. It'd be more like um, you, you ask you asking the bank what car what you asking the bank what car should I buy, um, and you know based on your lifestyle they would be able to analyze yeah. that. Um, but it's really getting into you know because we're in cloud-based open platforms, and there's an ecosystem with so many players doing so many things. I think what I'm looking at is when um, banking and fintech starts to integrate with other industries through mm-hmm. APIs and bring together new experiences for the customer's um, life. And we end up with um, that we don't actually need to um, think about money because it, it's done for us in our lifestyle events and um, day-to-day living. Um, in fact, it's interesting because I often talk about Ant Group um, in yep. China, um, who also have Ant, Ant, Ant International going global. Um, and I do remember the tagline they had. They, I think they've dropped it now, but it was one from about five, six years ago, which was everything you need for your digital lifestyle. That's when you think about that and super apps, because bearing in mind, uh, and groups, you know, um, a spin off yep. from Alibaba, um, they're talking about the full integration of commerce, entertainment, and um, buying and selling in uh, finance in a super app that means you don't have to think about anything because your whole lifestyle is managed digitally. 
and intelligently. And and I guess that's where I'm coming from. I was talking from. to someone uh, a couple of months ago, actually, on, on, on this podcast on, on the payment side. Uh, we're looking at sort of alternative payment methods, and we started talking about Tesla. And he was saying that uh, you know that there is um, a way that you know if you're driving Tesla, that, that obviously has to be sort of critical mass on a road. But you said actually, I need to get to my destination a little bit quicker. Um, it can communicate with other Tesla drivers, slow them down, but pay them kind of almost like a surcharge for for slowing them down, so you could get, then get through the traffic. I, th- I think that's kind of um, you know fintegration. Uh, I can't believe I'm saying that word. I hate that word. But that's kind of fintegration, but with a, a completely different ecosystem. We're not talking about integrating banks with fintechs. We're talking about integrating financial services or banking financial services with other ecosystems. Yeah, I mean that's in, in an essence what we're talking about. Well, there was one guy, a former Google engineer, who had a vision of. Um, self-driving cars creating their own self-driving taxi network that um, every payment would have a little bit put aside for generating and investing in the next group of cars and there'd be no human involved except for those who get in the cars to get from a to b you know that there's kind of this phantasmagorical changes that are going on and one of the things that is difficult when you're looking at trends and going out there um, in, into yeah. the future. Um, and I should say, I'm not a futurist. I'm a commercial strategist. I'm looking for where to invest and um, you know what's going to work. But if you did go into you know being speculative, I, um, I think in a hundred years we'll look back at what happened in this century as being a little bit like what we would look back at the um, 19th century industrial revolution uh, changes were we didn't live through them but um, you know uh, by way of example one thing that happened is that coca-cola was invented um, basically basically to de-stress people because they were getting so stressed out by change and um, in in a hundred years well that's one of the stories but in a hundred years, we'll look back and say this was a massively changing moment of time, and um, how it plays out will be interesting. I mean, one of the things that was in my um, late latest book before the new one that was coming out was di- digital for good. The whole idea that we can use technology to improve society and, and save the planet, um, and it's really interesting right now because we've got uh, a lot of meetings going on around. Um, I would say the climate emergency, um, because that's what a lot of people bang on about. But it's an awful lot of fintech companies that are looking at uh, renewables and carbon offsets and the whole way in which that can be used with technology to do better. And um, from my side, I I, I don't champion climate change because I'm not so sure whether this is just a cycle of Earth or whether it really is created by humans. But I know what is created by humans is biodiversity destruction. You know, and habitat destruction. You know, we've lost something like 60% of the wildlife on planet Earth in the last 50 years, thanks to human activity. And that's what I find quite disgusting. Going back to your, your point just now, actually, in terms of the, the pace of change um, and the rapid pace of change within the sector that we focus in, banking, financial services, fintech, um, it, it must be difficult. I mean, you, you obviously went through that when you're writing this book, halfway through, and then suddenly open AI pops out of nowhere. Well, let's say pops out of nowhere, Clearly, it was built, Um, but kind of goes into mainstream um, out literally overnight um, and then changes kind of the way that you're looking at things. Um, How is how difficult is that for you as a commentator and you as an author um, to to A, follow those trends um, and to B, kind of be able to pivot and go, actually, I've got a new idea because I've seen this technology. I mean, maybe if we wind the clock back seven or eight years and this thing called open banking, right? It wasn't really, I mean, maybe it was longer than seven, eight years ago, but, um, and then crypto and then all of these different things that keep coming into the markets, DeFi. I mean, DeFi is relatively new as well. Um, And and we still look at all that. And from a a commentator, I mean, you're going to end up writing, you know, war and peace, basically, right? Because you can probably keep going and going and going. How how do you know when to stop um, and when to go, okay, that's kind of, that's enough in that book. I'm going to save the rest um, for another sort of two years' time. Well, I mean, when you look at the future, there's four dimensions, political, economic, social, technological. I have no idea about the political and e- economic stuff because I don't think you can predict that. Um, that's the reason why we get so many black swans. You know, 
who who a lot of people did predict there would be a pandemic. You know, there's been many movies made around pandemics before COVID came 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 in. So we, we knew it's likely that that might happen. Um, and that's the same with technology. That you know, artificial intelligence. I've actually been writing about for, for um, too long, uh, about 25 years, because it's been bubbling away and developing over those years um, through t- different iterations. And in, in fact, it was very interesting because um, I've seen AI used mainly for fraud management and risk within financial institutions. Going back um, six years ago, I always remember this great headline that um, JP Morgan was using AI to do uh, the work of 350,000 hours of human legal time in one second. And it's checking contract wording. So OpenAI wasn't a surprise, but I I, I, what it did do is it's moved us to the next generation of artificial intelligence because most of it before was being used for single function and couldn't pass the Turing test. But we're getting to the stage now that um, we're going past that. Um, and what, what's really fascinating, and I, I think um, Satya Nadella, who's the CEO of Microsoft, is actually doing a great job because he's turned the company around. But equally, and I don't know whether it's him or one of his team, to spot open AI and say, let's buy that and integrate it with Bing. Um, and suddenly they're challenging Google, which that's the bit that you, you wouldn't have predicted. You would predict that, it, that there would be you know, um, AI getting to the stage where it's feeling like it's conversational, but you wouldn't have predicted that Microsoft could challenge Google on search. Absolutely not, no. You thought, you know, once once Explorer was dead, and that was kind of the final nail in the coffin, but uh, seems to have researched as, as Bing, and I must say, I've got it on my desktop. Um, I never thought I would download, you know, Bing, but uh, it's actually a very good browser. Um, Chris, I've I've, I've a little bit. I, I just want to bring this back to sort of the, the opening of this, which was um, about some of the work um, that you do um, in... Gender diversity, what, what that means, I think, first of all, in, in terms of industry, and um, I speak for myself, it's not about sort of standing up there, you know, burning bras and going, you know, women, women, women. It's It really is about, um, you know, uh, for me anyway, um, giving female leaders and not just leaders, but females that are coming into the sector um, a voice and an opinion and um, being able to uh, help navigate what is traditionally, certainly in this part of the world, a very, very male-dominated environment or sector. Um, how does that differ in Europe? I appreciate I'm from the UK, but I've not lived in the UK or Europe for 15, 16 years. Um, so how have things changed over the last 10 years or so when it comes to um, diversity? I know there's a lot of work that's done, but has that made an impact? Um, what are you seeing? What sort of work do you do? And then I'm going to come on to some of the things that I think people like you and um, I had Brett King on the other day as well um, and, and, and people who have a voice in the sector can do just to help sort of like Brett who sorry oh, he's a, never uh, heard some of him Australian chap looks a bit like me he's slightly whiter slightly whiter uh, oh, there you go. I said he was linked in by, by a... yeah 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 please <laughs> um, so yeah sorry <laughs> I mean diverse I mean diversity is quite intriguing in terms of there are not that many women that are succeeding in tech or finance Um, it's increased so that's the good news but an increase means that you know someone might say to you oh there's double the number of CEOs and founders that are female since 2010 in in finance and technology Uh, well that still means that it's only 10% or thereabouts um, which is small i mean i've got a lot of um female contacts in the industry who are incredibly uh, creative and enthusiastic um and you mentioned the european women's payments network that money 2020 for example a great crowd of people um but the this male allies thing that you were talking about i think what it is is there are people championing females in technology and finance unfortunately um, some people call that femtech which my 
lady colleagues said sounds like some sort of um, thing they have to use every month to control what's going on with their bodies. Um, it's 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 difficult, and and the reason it's difficult is that technology is a male-dominated industry because it's full of guys who are engineers um, by trade. And what we need to do is do a lot more work on STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math yeah. in education of girls um, who, who become ladies, obviously. Um, and I think that's where it's been deficient. And that's the reason why there's such a lack of diversity in banking and, and technology, because when you think about finance technology, science, technology, engineering, math. And what is it that girls are encouraged to do when they're you know, growing up at school? Not those subjects or not enough focus on those subjects. And, and that's where it fails. I mean, it's really interesting in, in China again, because I have done do a lot of work in China, that actually it's about 50-50 um, when, when you get into the executive team and in, in, into the organization. Uh, a lot of very successful female executives and chairman, uh, chair, chair ladies um, uh, in China. And the reason for that is STEM. You know, they've, they, they've done those investments over the last quarter of a century. And there's a huge female workforce that are just effective, if not more so, than the male workforce. And I think that's what's been lacking in certainly Europe and America. I'm surprised that's been lacking in developed markets or developed countries. Um, but as you said, is it... The, 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 the system's there, the curriculum's there, but perhaps there's not enough encouragement for um, for younger girls to get into sort of those subjects as opposed to, you know, if you're a, you know, a young boy and it's, oh, you've got to do in engineering and, you know, you can be a programmer and everyone's gone. It's all about gaming. Um, but I, I think as the new generations are starting to come through, um, there is a lot more equality um, around all different subjects. Uh, I was at my, um, my, my stepdaughter's... Um, award ceremony this, just this morning and uh you know the amount of guys that were getting you know um uh sorry boys that were getting accolades for being in the choir or dancing and the girls that were being in the cricket teams and in the football teams and in the rugby teams you know that there definitely is more that i can see more equality so do you think this is going to sort of naturally improve over time or do you think there still needs to be a deliberate um push in order to make sure that does actually happen Um, it is developing over time and it's, it's getting better slowly. Um, but I do remember going name dropping to Davos and um, there was one session because you know, the United Nations has 17 sustainability goals and one of those is that there will be equality of uh, race and sex. Um, and as I walked up the steps, there was one thing that they put on the steps because um, they had signs, which was... At the current rate, the true equality between men and women will occur around 2245, 22, over wow. 200 years away. Wow. 200 years away. Yeah, and there's, they had a report about it as well, which I picked up. And it's just interesting looking at, you know, it's the whole nature of everything from education, attitude, um, inclusion, um, the ability to get opportunity, um, you know, so many factors involved. And it's, it's not just therefore saying to your stepdaughter, um, you know, why don't you try a bit more of um, look, looking at um, the sciences, you know, chemistry and physics or going out and playing rugby, um, which girls do, um, but actually saying um, that there needs to be access once you go through schooling to those careers. And I, I, I still think that's quite limited for, for some areas, particularly yeah, finance. And it is. And I, I think, you know, I need to be cognizant of the fact that, you know, I'm very fortunate and privileged and, you know, the, the girls and, and my other kids go to private schools and I'm, I'm, I'm you know, very um, humbled to be able to sort of give that them, to them as an opportunity. But there is a massive part of the population, certainly here in, in Africa, that don't have that sort of luxury um, and, you know, are still uh, either not being able to go to school or they have very, very basic schooling. Um, so I think, you know, where, where technology can come in is to be able to, to be able to enable them uh, and, you know, people at the lower LSM to have access to 
different curriculums through different means and different methods. There's some amazing work that's being done in, in the world of uh, um, the metaverse and um, uh, virtual reality for training. And I think, you know, there I say, you know, there, there was one sort of positive that came out from COVID was, you know, that there, there had to be an adaptable way of learning. And uh, I think that's been sort of taken on and has improved quite a few people's or young, young kids' opportunities in life. And I think that's a, that's a really good thing. But, you know, 200 years to form equality, that, that's crazy. And there's, there's also an important point here that ties it back to artificial intelligence in that um, the way in which we educate children was built in yeah. Victorian era, which is basically put them through like a, a production line manufacturing things that they need to learn. So we all had to learn historical dates and events. We all had to learn um, specific aspects of mathematics around division multiplication and um, you know, this, you know the, the core group of subjects. And these days, the, a lot of the core group of subjects, to be honest, can be done by machines. You know, um, we don't need number crunchers. Absolutely. Machines can number crunch. With OpenAI, we don't need necessarily even people like me to write stuff, except that OpenAI is only as good as the people like me who write yeah. stuff because that's where they get their, their, their input from. Um, but the the main thing is that if machines are learning and therefore machines can do all the things that are the number crunching, mechanical, administrative jobs, which they, they can, and it will go further than that over the next 30 years, what should we teach our children? And I think I, I, we should be really nurturing children. And I've got two seven-year-old twin boys, so yep. I'm, I'm very passionate about this. We should, we should be teaching them to, to be the best they can be, whatever they can be, the emotions, the creativity, the things that are off the radar of a lot of the traditional educational system, because actually a lot of education, going back to the Victorian era view, is trying to put people through a narrow filter until they end up behaving in a very specific way, uh, rather than actually allowing them to explore their own internal view of the world and I, I think that the nurturing of kids to explore their internal views of the world will be a game changer. Uh, it stands to reason that you know the um, the education the kids are getting now wherever they are um, are they going to are, are they fit for the jobs of the future I mean some there's some jobs that we haven't even thought about right I mean whoever knew that a prompt engineer would be a job you know three years ago I didn't. I know you did. Yeah. And that's the key thing about artificial intelligence. So there will be jobs in the future. Um, and I've, I've written uh, various things around this. I call it trainers, maintainers, and explainers. You know, training the machines, maintaining the machines, and explaining what the machines yeah. are doing. And in particular, I, I think it comes down to you know, teaching children the things that machines cannot learn. So if machines can learn so much, and it's useful to have some, the basics of English, math, and writing, obviously. So I'm not saying get rid of the basics, um, but let's encourage ourselves to go out beyond the boundaries of machines, teach children to learn the things that machines, machines cannot learn. Of interest, what sort of things would that be? I knew you were going to ask that. Um, I think a lot of it's to do with relationships mm -hmm. and emotions again, emotional intelligence. So if you've got artificial intelligence doing everything that machines yeah. can learn, then humans should be doing the things machines cannot learn around relationships and emotions. Uh, in finance, I, yeah. I'll give you an example. In that uh, when I first started working in finance, um, I, I was given a bunch of books to read. Um, this was particularly in investment banking. And one of them was Barbarians at the Gate, which is a great book made into a movie with Tom Hanks. And it was all about um, the takeover by uh, KKR, one of the sort of raiders of the financial markets. Um, and the emotion involved in a hostile acquisition is incredible. And in that instance, you need to have people who can understand the emotions of the founders of the firms that are being acquired, as well as 
the acquirer and work with them to make it successful or to break it apart, depending on which camp you're in. And that area, a machine can't deal with that, you know, um, because it's relationships and emotions. Equally, when you think about mental health, you know, in fact, it intrigued me because there's a report in the USA where um, doctors were asked about a medical um, condition and there's a bunch of questions from the patient and I th they had something like 240 responses from the human doctors and one response from an artificial, an artificial intelligence machine and the artificial intelligence gave a much more sympathetic and empathetic answer than the doctors because the doctors are too busy to have the time to um, spend on the patient. Yeah. So, so it, it's kind of a double-edged sword. In fact, we had this huge debate the other night because I hosted a dinner about, around using artificial intelligence in fraud management and risk management. And what we ended up with is we're right now in a dual world, which is the machine and the human. And what you end up with in finance, and this is the conclusion of the dinner, is a machine-to-machine -machine war between the financial machine and the criminal machine. And the way that will play out is as long as the financial machine can keep up with the criminal machine um, using all these tools, then we can probably manage it to keep it down to an acceptable level. But the question is, what is an acceptable level of crime? And fraud. Um, I just want to bring you back. Um, at the beginning, we were talking about sort of programmable money, um, money working sort of for you without you sort of thinking about it. You mentioned, correct me if I'm wrong, maybe I misheard you, but there would be some sort of emotional about around this. Okay, so it would be it would have a an emotional element. Um, and then we've, we've just spoken about actually machines can't really be emotional um, but actually may, maybe they can because of the open AI or the um, AI uh, output for this sort of medical condition um, where do you sit um, do, you, do you actually think AI could become emotionally intelligent to a degree um, or again is that a bit more future sort of futuristic Chris side I, I mean, there is an emotional uh, emotional quotient in artificial intelligence, but um, I, one of the key things for me is when the technology breaks down, the structure we put in place today doesn't work. Yeah. And this happens to me quite often on a personal level, but equally I, I, on a professional level, I can see it take, taking place, which is when, for example, um, a simple example, you're booking a flight and you realize you booked the flight on the wrong day. Yeah. What should e easily happen is you just click a button and change it after you've made the order to the day you want it. But the structure isn't set up that way. So you end up calling the airline, sitting on the phone for 20 minutes to try and get an answer, speak to a human, and then the human has to do what's a mechanical job. Yeah. That, that really annoys me. It, it, it annoys me that when the, the pr technology process breaks down, I have to call, and quite often it could be something I could have simply fixed. But in a different context, I send money through faster payments to the wrong account, for example. Can I get that money back? Well, the answer is no, uh, because the machine computer says no. Um, but I should be able to talk to an artificial intelligence engine or a human or an avatar, I don't care what it is, and sort those things out in, in, a, in a quick and easy manner. And right now we're in this hybrid structure of old analog processes moving to digital process, old you know, last century structures based on buildings and humans moving to software and servers. And that's why I said, give it another 50 years. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out because I, I think we will get to the stage and this is what I mean by intelligent money that's embedded and invisible and everywhere, is that I could just speak to money. I could just say, sort that out because I've just messed up messed up the flight booking or the money I was sending, and it would just get done. Um, I saw a, um, I think I can mention them. Yeah, um, I'm not affiliated to them. I, I saw a, a video by uh, Temenos, 
um, the banking software provider, um, which was called um, the, uh, the Future of Banking. Or it was something, uh, banking is me or something. I, I'll see if I can find the video. Um, and it was really, really cool. I mean, there was some stuff in there that you, you actually looked at and you went, you know what, this is not far-fetched. This is simple things like, oh, you know, in two days' time, it's your grandmother's birthday. Do you want to send her a package? Um, here's three options that I think she'll like. Oh, yeah, there you go. Click that one. It's done. Finished. It's written a card. It's written everything and it's sent it. Um, little things like that or waking up and going, you know, oh, you know, you, you had a coffee yesterday. Um, why don't you try something different today? A little bit healthier. Have a uh, green tea. <laughs> Just little things. But it was that kind of the, the, the lifestyle element of banking and financial services but financial services almost being kind of just as we're seeing with what's happening with banks certainly in this part of the world the banks are becoming the infrastructure okay everything else happens on top so my personal view is you probably won't even see the banks in the future because it's just going to be sort of a technology um i don't know if you share that or, or not but uh you know the, the more sort of ob ob oblique the uh the banks become I think then the more functionality you can have as a consumer. Yeah, I mean, that's why I talk about invisible banking. But as you were talking that through, it's another subject we always come back to, which is um, what's the level of personalization that you can provide without being creepy? Yeah. yeah. Um, because obviously it's, it's down to the permissions of the customer as to how much data you can use and in what way. And... Um, at the moment, you know, we've seen a number of examples where companies using data actually mess things up. The favorite example was when um, an American company mailed a young lady and um, said, congratulations on your pregnancy. And when her father saw the letter, he went ballistic because he wasn't aware she was pregnant. Um, and that, that was using data based on her shopping habits. So it's kind of like, you know, there's a balance and most people would be happy to give their data if they get something back, which is convenience, um, rewards, uh, and more. Um, but that balance between data privacy and data access is going to be really interesting. Right now, what a lot of people are saying is over the next few years, we need to break the monopolistic positions of the big tech companies. I've no idea how we'll do that, but there's a lot of people wanting to break the monopolistic big tech grip on the network and uh, Tim Berners-Lee the creator of WWW um, is one of the most forthright speakers in that area uh, he's got a company called Solid and the whole idea is to decentralize the internet so it's owned individually by you in your area and you could you only give access to your data on a permissions basis when it's needed and not the, all of your data. So no one can ever see your complete identity details. They can just see the little bit that they need to authenticate. Yes, it really is Darren. It really is Chris. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. I think there's there's a lot of, um, I was talking to, to, to uh, one of the big telcos here uh, a, few, a few weeks ago and um, they were talking about the soup wrap and having all this data and being able to use all this data. And I, I think the first question was, hang on a minute, if you're talking to an average consumer on the street and they go, hang on a minute, how much do you know about me? Um, I didn't tell you you could have all that information. Um, and I think that, that there needs to be that sort of leveling of, uh, of the playing field. And I think that's where Web3 comes in, right? I, I'm no expert on Web3. Um, I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. But uh, the whole idea of uh, you know you owning your, your, your data, you owning your identity, um, and you being able to share what you deem um, shareable to third parties, whether that be a Google or a Facebook or a Meta or a bank or a fintech. Yeah. Um, sorry, I was distracted because someone just came to the door. <laughs> but, um, but, but, um, I mean, going back to what I was saying before about integrating different industries through mm -hmm. technology with data, yeah, yeah, we and and then applying intelligence, we we could actually bring together, you know, life sciences, medical technologies with farming agricultural technologies with government registration technologies with financial industry technologies with airline technologies all of them sharing data in an open platform system and um if as a user as a customer uh, as a human 
you felt that was useful to have that data shared between those organizations because you get benefits back, mm -hmm. then that's fine. But um, I think a lot of people are quite fearful about the liberal sharing of data. And a good example for me is the term open banking, because as a general person on the street, that sounds terrible. That means you're going to give my data away to someone else and I'm going to be insecure and they're going to get to hack my account. Um, I'd much rather say it was called better banking and say, no, we're going to give you better service, better experience, better benefits in your digital lifestyle, financial management than you get today. And so the terminology needs to be discussed in depth. It's like I hate the term embedded, embedded payments, embedded finance. I'm using it. But I, I, I use it in the way of saying it's an inside-out view from the industry to the customer. Whereas if I talk about invisible, invisible better banking, then that's an outside-in view because what I'm saying is you're not going to have to think about banking and you know your account. We'll, we'll manage it for you digitally. And for you, the benefit is that, therefore, you don't have to worry about money anymore because money thinks for you. Um and it, it needs to be from the customer Chris, view. I've got a big grin on my face. For those that are listening on uh, Spotify or Apple or, or something else, I'm sitting here with a great big grin. Because if you've been following Talking Success and some of the other podcasts I've done throughout the year, I've been harping on about the fact that open banking, the term, is an absolute oxymoron. Because you go up to anyone, any child, and you go, draw me a picture of a bank. And they draw a bank and they draw a safe and they go, this is a bank, right? At least that's how I would draw a bank. Um, you're then going, hey, it's open. They're going, it's what? Um, so, Chris, I haven't stolen this from you mm. before you trademark it. Um, it has been something I've been harping on about for the last six months. But uh, I'm with you on that. I think open banking is a terrible term. Absolutely terrible term. Um, Chris, I mean, another term I hate yeah. is, is, is channel. And people still continually harp on about omni-channel. And if for 15 years, I've been saying it's it's a last century word. It's like saying tape. You, are you going to tape record the show tonight, are you? You know, that, To me, that's what cha that, that the word channel is the same as tape. Um, we don't use tape anymore. We're st streaming everything. And equally from an uh, – uh, the reason I hate the word channel is it relates to traditional – heritage systems, as I call them, um, splattered with new technologies that actually disguise the fact that at the back is still this heritage system. And one of my other favorite terms um, when I'm presenting is to talk about Frankenstein's monster being renamed Bankenstein's monster, because the banks have this monster at, in their back office, which is fragmented line of business um, systems that are not integrated and they're actually typically 30, 40 or 50 years old and they're dead and they're stitched together and made to look nice by putting a smart suit on them called the bank app. Um, I'll tell you another term I, I see all the time, all the time, and it's in contracts, is, uh, you know, we'll send you this by email, by first class post or by fax email. By what? <laughs> this is from software companies going, yeah. uh, one of my colleagues a couple of years came up to me, What's this? Oh, and, yeah. Don't worry about it. Yeah, I, 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 I mean, I still see forms asking for, for your telex machine details, which is ridiculous. Um, fax machines, as yeah. you say, ridiculous. But equally, in today's age, if we're going to be woke, then why is it that I'd get a drop-down form that asks me if I'm Mr., Mrs., or Miss, or Doctor, or, or whatever, and doesn't say she, him, they, her? You know, it, I just don't understand. Well, I do understand. It's because of these Bankenstein dead systems that can't keep up with society's changes. It's very easy to fix that. Just make it a free text field. You know, surely that would be easy, right? I'd imagine you get some interesting uh, responses, but, uh, you know, you just made it free text. Hell of a lot easier. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Chris, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm conscious of the time. Um, before we wrap up, um, uh, I know you've got a, a new book coming out. Well, mid part of next year, um, you've got a series of other books. And I think anyone that um, is interested in the world of, of banking, um, digital transformation, AI, fintech, what's going on across the world, not just from a European lens, um, I'd encourage you a, a to sort of 
hop onto Chris's site, which I will put uh, on the links below and, and have a look around. Um, but please also subscribe to uh, his newsletter. Uh, it's daily. Um, I get them every single day. Um, they're also on LinkedIn as well. Follow follow Chris. You can't tag Chris on LinkedIn because um, he doesn't like that. So don't try and tag him because you won't be able to. Um, but um, yeah, don't drop a message because uh, he's a busy man. But um, do give him a follow. Um, do subscribe to his, his, uh, his newsletter. Uh, as I said at the beginning, Chris doesn't just regurgitate content that's being pushed out there. He comment, he commentates on it. Okay, so he gives his view and his um, his ideas behind and his commentary behind some of the topical things that are coming out. I read one um, just uh, it was yesterday, I think, on uh, you know future of banking, what that's going to look like. I think there was sort of four key bullet points, and I think you put laid most of them to rest in terms of actually. No, I think it's going to be these four rather than those four. Um, so please do give uh, give give Chris a follow. Um, and um chris is there any last words have i missed anything is there anything else or anywhere else i should be pointing people towards don't forget captain cake and the candy crew captain cake and the candy crew books for kids to learn very quickly about diversity and friendship Mm -hmm. and teamwork um and it's 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 really fun It's, it's it's basically captain cake um is is a victoria sponge cake who comes to life for various reasons and has a crew of um the lieutenant chocolate um sergeant jelly and private potato but she's a sweet potato okay just just to be clear um and private potato actually is the only reason why the the candy cruise rocket ship can keep flying through space so captaincake.com it's for kids about between the age of three to seven all right thank you i'll uh I'll also include that link down there. So, uh, you know, do have a look. Um, Chris, listen, I just want to say thank you so much and, and, and to your team as well for facilitating this. I know you're a busy man and uh, I, I really value your time. And uh, as I said at the beginning, I'm a, I'm a big fan. Um, I can stop stop blushing now um, and uh, go and have a cold drink. So, uh, listen, thanks so much. I've, I've really enjoyed this chat and uh, I look forward to seeing you somewhere on the planet again at some point in the future. Cheers. <laughs>